This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for setting aside some time today for us here at the National MSP Network. I'm Annie Davidson, and I'm your host today. Thank you so much for being with us. I work with uh, ExamWorks Compliance Solutions, and I am a member of the MSPN Network's Board of Directors. I co-chair the Policy and Legislative Committee and also work on the uh, Annual Conference Committee and am part of the Executive Committee as well. So on behalf of MSPN, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking time to listen to our podcast today. We have a great topic. We're kind of doing a a little case law update, you might say. We're going to cover a few cases here today. And to do that, we have a special guest. We have Shannon Metcalf here. She is a partner at uh, Hedrick Gardner, and she is a partner in the firm's Charlotte office. She represents a variety of carriers and employers from small businesses all the way up to large Fortune 500 companies. She defends them in their workers' compensation claims. And her clients are, you know, retail sector, insurance companies, professional sports teams, you name it, all across the country. She is a Medicare set-aside certified consultant, and she practices uh, heavily in the Medicare secondary payer field, hence her joining me here today. She's an active member of the North Carolina State Bar, the North Carolina Bar Association, North Carolina Association of Defense Attorneys, and so on and so forth. She's she's in she's you've got someone here who's in the know. Uh, so without further ado, Shannon, do you want to just say hi to our listeners and tell us maybe a little bit about you, maybe something I might have left out or a fun fact before we get started? appreciate you having me here today. It is, uh, it is my pleasure to come and talk about a case law update. You know, you did a great job introducing me. The only thing I'll add is that I just celebrated my 22nd year anniversary at the firm. So uh, yeah, I, I, I'm in a situation where I can walk down the hall and, and pretty much not know a soul at this point um, because we've got so many new people that have been that joining the firm for the past, you know, a couple decades. So I've been doing the Medicare um, compliance work for pretty much that entire time period and am an active uh, defense attorney litigating cases. Well, congratulations. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Well, without further ado, let's jump in. I think we want to cover a couple cases today. And I think the first one is one that uh, came out late last year and has kind of been um, on everybody's radar screen and it's big Y. Do you want to talk a little bit about that case? Maybe introduce the facts and, and tell us what we need to know. Yeah, this was a pretty big one. Edna Life Insurance Company versus Big Y Foods. It was, it was issued by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals on October 26, 2022. So just a month or so after we had our national conference. And uh, so of course, couldn't have been included in the case law update there. So certainly a good time for us to talk about it now. Um, The the Second Circuit decision uh, now joins the Third and Eleventh Circuits in basically in ruling what they had ruled before, that Medicare Advantage plans can sue insurers under the private cause of action statute. So let's delve into the facts a little bit. 
Specifically, in February of 2015, Miss Guerra fell and sustained some injuries at Big White Foods. Big White Foods is a supermarket. Her medical care after that slip and fall was paid for by Aetna Life Insurance Company, which is a Medicare Advantage plan. Now, the total medicals paid, it's not this exorbitant amount, it was just a little bit right under $10,000 were the medicals paid. Ms. Guerra filed suit against Big Y, alleging that it was responsible for her injuries and that it owed her um, compensatory damages, medical, medical damages, you know, lost wages, all, all that sort of stuff. In September 2015, so we're only talking about six months after the fall, Aetna sent Big Y a letter stating that per the Medicare Secondary Payer Act, Aetna was owed the $10,000 that it paid for Ms. Guerra's medical care and the letter even went so far as to, as to warn that, hey, Big Y, if, if you don't pay us, you, that could result in double damages. So there was, there was no hiding the ball. You know, Aetna did not hide the ball from Big Y. Big Y on the other side felt, hey, Miss Guerra's fall, that was the result of her own negligence. And, and we're not responsible for that. We, we don't owe her anything. Um, we're not responsible for her medical expenses. Um, but a year or so goes by, and it's not unusual at that point in the personal injury case for the parties to start talking about potential settlement. So a year later, Big Y offered Miss Guerra $30,000 to settle her case. She signed a release of all claims, which in that release noted that Big Y disputed liability. Now, the case specifically doesn't tell us all the language that was cited in the release agreement. So you know, you, we, we can't pick apart Big Y's release and whether or not that specifically had um, something to do with where they ended up. But based on the arguments that Big Y made later on in litigation, it is apparent that that release did not explicitly discuss anything about the payment of medical expenses or liens. So there was no language in the release that said Miss Guerra is a Medicare beneficiary, she has a lien, she has to pay the lien, Miss Guerra and or her counsel is gonna do this. It doesn't say anything about that. We, we do know that based on arguments that, that Big Y makes later on in the case. So after the case settles, Aetna sent another letter to Big Y and said, pay us our $10,000. Big Y refused, so Aetna then filed suit in the Second Circuit against Big Y they also filed suit against Ms. Guerra and her attorneys. So they filed suit against everybody, you know, kind of what we always thought would happen. They're just going to kitchen sink and sue everybody all at one time, saying we are owed reimbursement for our conditional payments. Somebody's got to pay it. Now, Ms. Guerra and her attorneys, and if memory serves me correctly, they filed suit against the firm and the attorneys individually and Ms. Guerra. So uh, there's a whole whole host of people that are involved here. Miss Guerra and her attorneys filed a motion to dismiss, which was granted as the court found that Aetna did not have a valid private cause of action against any of them under the Medicare secondary payer private cause of action provision because they noted that only applies to primary payers. So Big Y stands up, they file a motion to dismiss too, saying we're not a primary payer either then you should dismiss us from this case. Well, theirs was denied. Um, the court held that Big Y was in fact a primary plan and that Medicare Advantage plans, just like Aetna, 
can sue primary plans under the Medicare secondary payers private cause of action statute. Now, Big Y argued the settlement, this settlement didn't explicitly cover her medical expenses. So there was nothing about medical expenses. So we're not liable under the Medicare Secondary Payer Act. But the court found that there's no doubt that this, the claim that she brought included a claim for medicals. So there's, you know, it, it's pretty unreasonable for Big Y to argue that medicals were not a part of the release. And remember that language in statute and for, especially for reporting purposes is claimed and or released. And so here they were most certainly claimed. And I think that my guess would be if three or four years had passed and Miss Guerra had went to Big Y and, say, and said, you owe me additional medical expenses, Big Y would have held up that release and said, no, we don't because we got a release for medicals. Um, so they did not dismiss Big Y. Aetna then filed for summary judgment against Big Y. The court granted summary judgment and said, Big Y, you owe Aetna the conditional payment recovery of right under $10,000 plus double damages. So at this point, we're a little under $20,000. And in the ruling, the judge reiterated that, hey, courts have consistently held that a tortfeasor, whether it is an insured or a self-insured, tortfeasor, which here Big Y was self-insured, can be a primary plan for purposes of the MSP. So Big Y appealed. They were not successful in that appeal, and hence the Second Circuit decision uh, in October of 2022 against Big Y that reiterates, again, like two other circuits have, that Medicare Advantage plans can sue insurers under the private cause of action statute, and they can recover double damages. So, frankly, it's not a surprise to me, um, and I expect other circuits to follow suit when they are also given the opportunity to do so. And it's all the more reason that defendants have got to be um, super proactive about obtaining Medicare and or Medicare plan, Advantage plan lien information prior to and at the time of settlement and ensuring those liens are paid. And here, Big Y couldn't even argue they didn't know about the lien because Aetna put them on notice a mere six months after the accident. And so they, they had direct knowledge that the lien exists and failed to do anything about it. And certainly now with the implementation of the PAID Act, defendants like Big Y wouldn't have that argument in the future anyway. Not that I think it would ever fly, but that argument, if anybody ever wanted to make it, is now gone. So Annie, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I have to say, you know, you stole one of the questions I had for you out of my mouth. You already answered it, which was, were you surprised at all? Because you said you weren't. I'm not either. Uh, this is one of those cases uh, where, right, the Second Circuit hadn't yet ruled, but we've seen other circuits rule, as you've mentioned. We've seen individual state rulings here and there or uh, more regional rulings. And every time the courts look at this type of issue with a Medicare Advantage plan 
asserting, you know, sending out a demand and requesting payment and not getting paid timely within that 60 days, you see this sort of automatic double damages provision kick in and you see um, carriers and self-insureds losing. So I'm with you in that I wasn't surprised that it happened. Um, I think it also harkens back your point about them having actual notice too here is huge because it harkens back to that Western Heritage case out of Florida a few years back where you saw the same thing happen. You saw a carrier um, who had settled. They said, hey, the other side you know, said they were going to take care of all the liens. We, we gave her money to do it. And then lo and behold, they didn't get paid timely and they, they went after the, the primary payer, i.e. the person who paid the money. Um, so I, I'm with you. I did not find this surprising. Um, I think, you know, the the key here too, and, and I know you're going to talk a little bit about this here in a minute when you talk about another case, um, like you said, the settlement language is so key, but I think the other piece of it is now carriers and self-insureds have access to paid act data. So if they had properly, and again, we don't have all the facts here, but if this was a situation where big Y or, you know, a TPA for them had done the query, they had the first name, the last name, the date of birth, the gender on file with the social security administration and the social, they would have been able to see even without Aetna sending them the letter what plan she was enrolled in. And I think, and and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this in a second, Shannon, about, you know, key language to go into a settlement agreement, because one of those pieces when I was still in private practice and something I, I tell folks to do now is a lot of times in releases, you want to push everything off. If you're defense, you want to push everything off to the plaintiff to resolve. That can be okay when true traditional Medicare is involved because traditional Medicare does tend to target the plaintiff for recovery, but Medicare Advantage plans don't do that. And they're not required to do it under the, you know, 42 CFR 411. There are provisions there that say a Medicare Advantage plan can target a primary payer. And that's what they do. They don't start with the beneficiary. They start with the primary payer. So I would love to hear your thoughts on, um, you know, release language, and then maybe you want to start talking about your other case too. Yeah, it's like the bell rang with the Medicare Advantage plans of who the, who has the deep pockets. So why even bother with going after the Medicare beneficiary when we can go after an insurance company that has the funds to pay? Um, so yeah, I, I, I think that that's, they're the primary target. And, and there's, there's no release language in this world that will relieve a defendant from liability from a Medicare Advantage plan if they aren't paid back. You know, I, I, I preach all the time about how important, and it is very important, but also the due diligence from the defendants on the front end of making sure that all the lien information has been obtained to then drafting your settlement documents to then the follow-up on the back end to making sure it was paid. Um, Like specifically, my recommended release language requires a plaintiff's attorney to hold the settlement funds in trust until they have gotten the final demands and paid them from traditional Medicare and or any Medicare Advantage plan and sent me confirmation that the payments have been made. And then and only then is when they're allowed to disperse 
the proceeds. Now, do I get some kickback from plaintiff's attorneys on that? Sure, I do. But when they kick back at that, it, it raises a red flag for me because my response is, are you not going to do these things? Are you not going to get a final demand from Medicare and any Medicare Advantage plan that's been applicable over, you know, who knows how long it's been since the date of incident? You're not going to do those things because I can give you case after case, U.S. versus Harris and the, the um, you know, the memos from the Department of Justice up in Pennsylvania where they'll go after you too. So it's it's not just my client that I'm concerned about. Um, you know, I'm like, here, here's here's the evidence that they can come after anybody and everybody. And especially for a Medicare Advantage plan, I see them either targeting the defendant or the plaintiff's attorney because they have the funds too. So, I mean, just today, here's an example, practical example. Today, I had a client ask for assistance with release language for a claim that had a date of injury back to 2019 for somebody who was a Medicare beneficiary at the time of the incident. Um, they also sent over, here's, here's I got the lien information from the Medicare Advantage plan. And I looked, um, yeah, opened the documents 10 pages long. So I'm scrolling through it. It shows medical payments for 2021 and 2022. Immediately, I emailed her back and said, what about treatment in 2019 and 2020? Did he have any treatment for those two years? It would be unusual for somebody to have a motor vehicle accident and not treat for two years and then treat for two years. Because if he did, he was on Medicare during that time. And she just said, well, you know, I just thought that it was the same insurance coverage and that this was just all of it. And you know, there you go. And then, you know, had to do the education of it could have been traditional Medicare in 2019. It could have been Humana in 2020. And then it could have been ABC Insurance Company, whoever it was in 2021, 2022. And you, insurance company, have access to that information from the Paid Act. You cannot just assume anything. So, it is, you do not have all the information that you need to prepare adequate settlement language and know who you're going to write checks to. You know, so, I mean, that happened this morning. So, you know, all we can continue to do is educate people too of how important it is because fixing things on the back end is, is difficult and it leaves everybody open for exposure. So, That'll move me into, so I thought now with Big Y specifically, there wasn't an issue with settlement language and who was responsible because again, the release didn't mention who was responsible for medicals or liens, which again, we do not recommend. Um, but with regard to settlement language, of course, it's super important that we get it right. Um, if Big Y would have just said, hey, Miss Kira, Etna's you know, advised us that it made conditional payments of $10,000. It sent us this letter. It's demanding payment. If we're going to settle this case, then you've got to agree that that payment's going to be made to Aetna out of the settlement proceeds. And either we're going to write them a check and then write you a check for the rest, or we're going to write you a full check for the $30,000 and your attorney's going to negotiate with Aetna and, you know, pay them what they're owed. Or, you know, that simple communication right there, there would have been no reason for a lawsuit. So all that has to be done on the front end and it's got to be a part of the negotiation. So that leads me to a different ruling from a magistrate judge in the, it, out of the um, U.S. District Court for the Middle District of North Carolina. Um, defendants got their hands slapped because they didn't demand their Medicare terms 
of settlement, at the time of settlement, or in the mediation agreement at all. So let me go through those facts. The case name is Bone versus University of North Carolina Healthcare System. So in that case, Mr. Bone and several others filed suit against UNC hospitals for denying blind individuals an equal opportunity to access their health in information in violation of the ADA, specifically by not providing their bills to them in Braille. So they were you know, patients of UNC healthcare system, they were going for treatment, insurance was paying things, and you know, in this um, specific situation, the person was on Medicare, Mr. Bone was on Medicare. And when he was getting invoices of what he owed, his co-pays, that sort of thing, he couldn't read them because he was blind. So he had called several, 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 several times and asking UNC, you've got to send me these um, uh, bills in Braille so that I can read them and know what I'm supposed to pay. So they did not do that. So he filed suit. The, the complaint itself sought compensatory, compensatory damages as well as an injunctive relief asking you know, to force UNC Hospital to implement a Braille system, but it did not request any compensation for medical expenses. So you look at the complaint, the complaint says nothing about medical damages at all. During discovery, UNC asked Mr. Bone, hey, outline the grounds for your demand. Like, what are you seeking in compensatory damages? He did that, he answered discovery, None of his, he said none of his demand involved any compensation for past or future medicals. So that was in discovery responses, answered under oath. After that, UNC's counsel sent an email to plaintiff's counsel and said, hey, we need information necessary to report this case via Section 111 reporting if, if we're able to settle it, there was a mediation that was coming up. So if we're going to be able to settle the case at mediation, we're going to need all the information. So they ask, you know, for everything, social security number, that sort of thing. Plaintiff's counsel responded with a very lengthy email and reminded him, this isn't a personal injury case. Like, Mr. Bone is not alleging medical compensation. And instead, he's seeking damages. And this was, quote, he said, for garden variety emotional distress and said, there's no medical bills implicated. So apparently, you know, he was just seeking compensation for being stressed out about not being able to read his bills and not being able to know what he was supposed to pay you and see that sort of thing. But the plaintiff's attorney's email said, there's no medical bills, there's no medical compensation. Now, UNC's attorney didn't respond to the email. He never raised the section 111 question again. You know, he didn't respond and say, hey, I'm confused, I, you know, but, emotional distress to me sounds like he could have went to the doctor you know nothing like that so he never raises the issue again about medicare or section 111 um, prior to mediation during mediation at the time that they were writing up the the mediation settlement agreement nothing is said about medicare a representative from unc was also present during the mediation the entire mediation and said nothing about needing any specific medicare terms in the release nothing about section 111 nothing about specific medicare terms like hey we're unc and this is what we require when we settle cases nothing like that so certainly and you'll see in a minute why the representative from unc 
and the attorney for UNC were not on the same page with somebody who is in the higher ups at UNC and was the one that makes the decisions about here's what we want to do as far as Medicare compliance is concerned. So the case settles at mediation. All the parties sign the mediation agreement. Attorneys sign it. UNC representative signs it. Mr. Bone signs it. Um, again, says nothing about Medicare. Um, and in, the, in fact, too, the mediation agreement says there's no contingencies that have to be met with regard to this settlement. Um, you know, nothing else has to be done. We're going to pay the money, basically. And it even said, and I don't know, because, you know, we we have language from the mediation agreement in the case, but we don't know if it was kind of form language or if it was something that was specifically written in. But there's also a clause that says no third party liens will be paid from the proceeds. Like that's specifically in the mediation agreement. So there's no contingencies. There's no Medicare language, and it specifically says there's no liens that have to be paid. So then a couple weeks later, UNC's counsel, Lord knows what happened in between the mediation and when counsel drafted that release um, from where he got the, the, you know, the information from UNC, but he drafted a release and noted a lot of terms that were not included in the mediation agreement. So it noted that that payment of the settlement proceeds to Mr. Bone was contingent on him receiving confirmation from Medicare that there was no outstanding lien. Um, and it also demanded plaintiff's counsel and plaintiff indemnify UNC for any future claims related to Medicare and Medicaid, which I really thought was interesting because it, it plaintiff's attorneys, this may be, this may be. You may be able to do this in other states, but in North Carolina, a, an attorney cannot agree to indemnify a party. So that there's, I mean, that's just contrary to what's allowed too. So plaintiff's counsel responded back and, and the language of his emails is in the case, very cordial and said, here's alternative language. Like, remember, none of this applies. Like we you know, not only did we not agree to these things, but none of this applies. It doesn't apply to this case. It's not a personal injury case. Like there's no medical expenses. So here's alternate language and propose this alternate language saying all this stuff. And UNC said, no, we're not doing it. You have to agree to all these things. You have to go get all this stuff from Medicare. So plaintiff filed a motion to enforce the settlement. And so when they go to argue the motion, UNC's main argument was that Hey, settlements, you know, settlements and settlement agreements, they've got to contain terms that are fair and lawful. And so our settlement, it's got to provide for the Medicare Secondary Payer Act and Section 111 reporting compliance. Like it has to have those things in there because that's what's required by the law and settlements have to be lawful. But the court reiterated the fact that it doesn't apply. There's no medicals that were being claimed or released with the settlement. And so the mandatory reporting requirements aren't triggered. Plus, um, the terms that UNC had demanded to add after mediation were materially different terms. These were not simple, simple minor details. Um, and those sorts of things like a contingency, like this settlement is contingent on you getting a letter from Medicare that says you only owe X, Y, or Z. Contingencies like that have to be negotiated at the time of settlement. Um, and, and their settlement agreement, remember, said there were no contingencies. So it's direct in opposition of what the settlement language said. 
And you certainly wouldn't, wouldn't expect any plaintiff to agree to indemnification after the fact, you know, to say, yeah, we're going to indemnify you for, for everything when that was never discussed at the time of mediation. So if UNC had wanted those terms to be in the settlement, it should have demanded the terms at mediation. It should have put those in the mediation agreement. Um, and my recommendation to at least all the lawyers that ask for help with language from me, I say, send your proposed language to plaintiff's counsel before mediation. Like why spend an hour talking about it and, and, and bickering back and forth about it. Like if there's going to be a problem with contingencies and holding funds and trust and indemnification and all these material terms that we want to see as defendants in our settlement agreement, then we need to talk about it before mediation. Because number one, if there's something that's going to be demanded by the insurance company and you're not going to do it, then I need to talk to, you know, potentially higher, up, higher ups there. Um, but also we could go back and forth and maybe agree on something that, you know, may be still beneficial for everybody, but less restrictive. So I just can't stress enough how important it is for the parties to be on the same page about any Medicare or Medicare secondary payer obligations. I mean, early, early on in the claim, it's not, it's never too early to start that investigation and to get the information and to start talking about who's going to be responsible for what. But most certainly by the time settlement negotiations are taking place, like there's there's no reason for anybody to surprise another party with language post-settlement, certainly none, because that's not going to work. But, you know, why surprise them at mediation? You know, my thought is full disclosure, send the information in advance, and then if there's a problem with it, we can talk about it before mediation. So, Annie, what are your thoughts? I am so with you, Shannon. Uh, thank you so much for summarizing that case and, and giving these exceptional pointers. I, when I was in private practice, I dealt with work comp and liability insurance defense. And so often I would see work comp deals start to fall apart because everybody went to the settlement conference or the mediation and agreed to a settlement, but did not disclose what they wanted their Medicare terms to be. And then there would be this big fight at the end after, you know, supposedly a deal had been reached and sometimes there would be no deal. Um, I'm also working right now on a case, a liability case where some terms were discussed, but all of a sudden a sneaky little local rule popped up right in that, in that jurisdiction. And now they have to provide information and, you know, defend in this case, I'm helping the plaintiff side and defense is now coming and saying, Oh, well, we need this or we need that. And Medicare is involved and we've already got things underway to sort of deal with the conditional payments, but query what kind of um, deal they have still. And does this local rule and what needs to be provided, um, you know, the judge is going to have to sign off on it, you know, et cetera. Is that going to throw a wrench in? And the more you can talk about this stuff ahead of time, the better off you are. I think there's also cases out there, which of course we don't have time to get into today, but I think we've all seen these cases uh, going different ways across the country, even around Section 111 data and the and the query process and trying to, you know, have carriers be able to do the reporting they need to do 
by golly, you better negotiate to get that. If, if you're not getting it through discovery, um, you, that needs to be at a minimum something you're getting when the, the signing is happening on the dotted line so that you can do your section 111 reporting because there are plenty of courts that have said too bad, so sad. If you try after the fact to argue that you're not going to release the payment promptly within 21 days or what have you, because you don't have what you need to report. Shannon, you covered a lot of that stuff really well. And make sure you're covering what you need to do, what it is on your end, regardless of what party you are, to really fulfill all of the obligations you have around Medicare compliance, because it's not just Section 111 reporting. It's not always just conditional payments, and it's not just an MSA. Um, it can be all three of those things. It can be one of them. Um, you have to really pay attention. And then, as we already talked about earlier, Medicare Advantage plans throw another wrench in it. So I, I think you did a fabulous job, Shannon. Anything you want to say before we kind of start to wrap things up for our listeners? Well, I, it, it is just, you know, all we can do again is continue to educate and hopefully everybody's going to, you know, wrap their heads around the fact that just like you said, it's, it's, there's three big parts to Medicare secondary payer compliance. And the first part that everybody thinks about, they always think about the MSA, the MSA, the MSA, and the other two are afterthoughts. And frankly, the other two have bigger consequences, um, at least from a case law perspective about, uh, you know, what can happen if those two parts of the Medicare secondary payer compliance, the conditional payments and the reporting are not done properly. So it's just, it is a three-part process and I'm with you. We just got to get everybody on the same page that um, to make sure all of those are done properly. And, and you know, because we all just want to, close claims and close them properly so that everybody's protected and that we're not reopening them six months down the road. Um, and so, but, you know, we need everybody's help to do that. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Shannon, for joining us. Um, you have set aside some time to talk with us today and we really appreciate it. And certainly thank you to our audience for setting aside your time to listen to our MSPN podcasts. We will be re releasing another podcast soon. Uh, I'm not going to sort of tease you with the topic. Uh, you can find out when that drops, uh, but we will leave you here. Uh, so on behalf of everyone at the National MSPN Network, thank you for setting aside some time. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.